When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Motherfucker Podcast at Words. Irish. Irish words. And words from Ireland. I'm Tara Crochet. I'm Clodagh McGinley. And I'm Bader Kilmonic. Today, one thing I want to talk about is a major work of Irish literature. It's something that we've been asked to do an episode on before. It's something I've been meaning to do an episode before. And a part of me has felt like, oh, we'll do it another time. We'll do it a little later. But you know, can't leave it any later because you can't leave it any later than midnight. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, you aren't going here. Just clarify, we're not recording this at midnight. No, we... we're recording this at a sensible hour, like like adult human beings. No, we're... it is actually midnight. We're eating donuts at midnight on a Tuesday. Ooh, <laughs> spooky, spooky midnight, <laughs> the witching hour. This, this could be your Halloween episode. No, no, it won't. Okay, no. <laughs> no. okay. So spooky court on Vanilla and by Brian Merriman. So, Clodagh, what is Curtin Van Eeha? Curtin Van Eeha is effectively a really, I think you could call it like a seminal, a seminal piece of work, I would say, of Irish literature, written by Brian Merriman in the late 1700s, 1780, 85, that kind of time. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts out in the form of an Ashling, the Ashling verse, the Ashling poem, whatever you want to call it, and it also uses the court of love. And it's basically a commentary, a social commentary on the role of women in society at that time and how... Crap, men are basically like the crux of Court and Vanica, in my humble opinion, is we stand evil, evil, whatever you want to call her, <laughs> and men are cancelled. Yeah, that so is... that, that's to, to translate it into modern terms. <laughs> yas Queen and men yes, are cancelled. Yes, yes Ban Ryan. Yeah. And men are cancelled. Yeah. That is the crux. That, you don't even need to read it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's done. It's done. It's done. Uh, Court and Vanica is um, it's satire. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a satire on society, and it, as as Clodagh points out, it uses the form of the Ashling or the vision poem, and the idea behind the um, the vision poem is, is that uh, the poet is out walking late one evening, and he sees a vision of a beautiful woman uh, from the other world on Down Ella, and she takes him by the hand, and usually, typically speaking, the woman is an embodiment of Ireland, and particularly in the late seventeen uh, hundreds, uh, you know. You know, we, we've spoken on the podcast before about how the idea of Ireland as a nation can be dated to poetry and literature itself, to Shahrin Cajun and the, uh, the, the end of the 17th century, the beginning of the 18th century. So this was well embedded at this stage. So the Ashling then would be the embodiment of Ireland. Banaba or Fola or Era would take the poet by the hand and say, oh, I am... Um, I am trapped, I am in chains, I am in bondage because of the foreign invader and, oh, the youth of Ireland. And Merriman turns it on its head and he sort of, instead of looking out to the problems that assault Ireland from without, it's the problems that assault Ireland from within, namely that uh, we're getting married way too old 
and <laughs> young yeah. girls can't find a husband. And the poet dreams one night that he sees a vision, but not of a beautiful girl, of a horrific giantess who grabs him bodily and takes him to the court of Queen Evil. The, mm-hmm. uh, the the queen of the she in that part of the world uh, down in, in Clare where uh, Brian Merriman was from. And then there follows the standard Brehon uh, law uh, court three-part debate uh, where the accuser, a young woman, accuses the men of Ireland of being uh, layabouts and vagabonds and terrible altogether and not getting their stuff together and getting married. Then the... Uh, the men of Ireland are given the opportunity to rebut and respond and then the women of Ireland are allowed to finish it off and then Queen Evil passes her judgment and then uh, that's the end of the, 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 the court part of it. And, you know, he, he wakes up and it was all, it was all a terrible dream. Yes. <laughs> He's learned a valuable lesson. There is one line in the poem as well which I feel could sum it up quite well and it's Dimi im spodge gan far gan foster. And it's, I got my gender, but I get no sex. That is effectively what is being argued in the poem. And then at my time of life, it is depressing and cold, doing without luxuries, jewels and gold and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, so it's, and I mean, arguably as well, the old hag in the poem who grabs the poet and brings him into this fairy court or court of love court, Queen Evil's court. She is a Sparavan. Do you know what I mean? Like, she is. It's a parody of a Sparavan. But, I mean, strictly speaking, a Sparavan is like a woman who comes from the sky. So, mm-hmm. you can't say that she's not a Sparavan. Yeah, exactly. She, she she looked unreal. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. She's from another exactly. world. It's just, Merriman just says, you know what, we're expecting it to be, you know, this beautiful figure, you know, with uh, hair as black as night and skin as white as snow and lips as red as blood and so on and so forth. And it's like, no, no, it's a crone, it's a hag, it's a giantess. And she's going to grab the poet bodily and drag him to the other world. And and there he's going to listen to a young woman make her case. And so he he sits there. Uh, he's not able to leave the court of love, uh, Court on Dionyha, the Midnight Court, the name of the poem. And the young woman makes her case that the men of Ireland are, uh, they're being uh, remiss in their duties. Uh, they um, they refuse to marry. She complains that despite increasingly desperate attempts to capture to, to capture a husband, she can't. I mean, she's <laughs> tried everything. Intensive flirtation at hurling matches, which is <laughs> exactly how you get a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, she goes to wakes. Uh, you know, well, we all know that they often said, you know, Wakes was a great place to meet um, someone. That you often find someone's recently single at a wake. It's cracking. I hear you're single again. <laughs> Is he cold yet? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then pattern days, pattern days being the fairs, the market days, and the likes. And you, you, there were. There were not great opportunities to meet people in those days. Those are the events that you do. So you go to those and you, you flirt your hoop off in the hope that somebody will spot you and go, oh, you're a, you're a nice uh, a nice looking young lady. Let's have a little chat and then maybe we could form an engagement. We'll price a dairy and we'll get married. But she says this doesn't happen. The young men insist on ignoring her. They're having too much fun, riding all and sundry. And then when it comes to actually getting married, uh, they wait until they're much, much later on in life and they marry older women and they marry for wealth and they marry for comfort. Mm -hmm. So she also says the knock-on effect of this is, as a young woman, the way I'm treated by the older women in my village is appalling because they think I can't get a husband. I can't get no man. Mm -hmm. You're going to be a spinster for the rest of your life and all that kind of jazz. Yeah, exactly. And, And when you think about it, like, this 
was an issue in Irish society. I, I remember flicking through an old Guinness Book of Records when I was uh, when I was a kid. I would go and spend summers with my grandparents at Castlebar. They had this amazing collection of old Guinness Books of Records, and one of them had like the records of of Ireland. Like, what are the records? Ireland is the best at this and the best at this. And at one stage in the nineteen eighties, we were still the oldest average marrying age in the world. And this, you know, men wouldn't get married until they were in their thirties, and women, on average, were twenty-nine. Which, compared to other countries, developed, developing world, it didn't matter. Uh, that was quite, quite high. So this is this is something, and this is something that that's come up. I guess a lot. I mean, it's a, it's something that's a recurring theme in, in folk songs. The the Dubliners famously sang "Maids when you're young, never wed an old man." Yeah, a great song <laughs> containing the line, you know, because he's got no fullerum, fuddlelyrum. <laughs> he's got no fullerum, fuddlelyrum. He's got no fullerum. He's lost his dingdurum. <laughs> Maids when you're a, young, a, never wed an old man. A lack of fullerum or, or dingdurum uh, was one of the one of the many reasons this this young lady, the vision of the young woman in the court, is is the crying old man. Um, she she also very very interesting when she's setting out her stall for the case. She also says that uh, when Queen Evil thinks about passing judgment, she should end priestly celibacy. Yes, mm-hmm. because priests would be killer husbands. Look at them; aren't they awful nice? And they awful nice chaps. And wouldn't it be lovely to marry a priest? We used to be able to marry priests, and then the church said you have to stop that. And now, we, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could just marry another priest? And wouldn't it make so, the priesthood a very interesting prospect so for people? Mm-hmm. Then, Christian Vanny is basically flee back in the 18th century, more or less. Yeah, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, <laughs> can we marry a priest so long as he looks like Andrew Scott? Hmm. Yeah, hot, hot Andrew Scott, <laughs> who has. Oodles of Falorum and and a myriad of Dingdorum. It's funny enough, Andrew Scott was the year ahead of me in school, oh. and also in the class was Jonathan Forbes, who plays Sharon Horgan's brother in Catastrophe. Oh God, Catastrophe oh, no is way. the best. They are both yeah, Catastrophe's class. It, it really is, and it's it's funny that like two boys from the same from the same class in school both went on to have some very successful television careers yeah. and and acting careers. And, and Andrew um, Andrew Scott gave me his history notes when he finished his leaving. And was he any use? Uh, I'll tell you this, his, the doodles on the side of his copy books were like he were frameable. He was an amazing artist. Our art teacher actually said that if Andrew Scott didn't get an A1 in art, he'd resign. Did Andrew Scott get an A1 in art? He did. Yay! Yay. Well done, hot priest. Well done. <laughs> well done, Moriarty. Well, and he's, <laughs> and he's best mates at Lin-Manuel Miranda now as well. Oh, oh no way. So, oh. Yeah, so all's go, going well there. Getting back to the, the, the old age of marrying, Michael Collins the uh, famous, uh, not the astronaut, the the, <laughs> the, the, the the Civil War guy from Cork, hist- historical hunk that winner. My God, um, his father was 65 when he got married to a woman in her 20s. Mm. And they had 12 kids, I think. Wow. So he was, uh, obviously had... <laughs> you saved up all his dingdorum. He saved yeah. up all his dingdorum. <laughs> and... Um, Pat- <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine his poor wife going like, when he said he was saving it all up from marriage, I thought he meant money. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. I'd I'd like to think there's a few twins or something in there, but who knows. But then and Patrick Kavanaugh when he was writing the, the Great Hunger and other works, the the the, the big issue was that for young men in Ireland and the countryside could not marry until they inherited a bit of land. Particularly when you had um and middle siblings, younger siblings, there was a, almost a thing in Ireland that the inheritance was a, was a burden as much as an actual, as, as, as much as a privilege. Mm. And I think a lot of our, a lot of our capital gains kind of 
laws re- re- reflect this idea that it's actually a terrible burden to inherit a bit of land with a bit of property. Mm-hmm. And but there was there were massive social problems to this. Yeah, well, if you move um, move to the the writings of John B. Keane, mm-hmm. uh, Letters of a Matchmaker, and indeed the wonderful play Sive, uh, he's written extensively about a phenomenon that still exists in Ireland: the bachelor farmer, yeah. and that like you spend. I mean, you spend all your life working on the farm from dawn until dusk with very little room for social activities. That takes up all of your concerns. And by the time you realize, oh my God, I'm on my own. My parents have died. I own this land and I'm on my own. You're you're gone to seed. You're 50, you're 60, you're not healthy. You're not a catch anymore. The only thing that stands to you is the land. And as we moved on in society, as society became, basically our, our global society became smaller and Irish society became bigger and more intermingled, uh, young women all of a sudden weren't really that interested in, you know, I might marry for the land or just to stay in the parish or anything like that. I can go to the city, I can work, I can, mm-hmm. you know. So young women were getting on with their lives and um, generations of older Irish men were sort of left behind and we still, to this day, have bachelor farmers living in isolated areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see them in the news more often associated with tragedy than anything else. They've been burgled or they've been, you know, assaulted or robbed or they have, you know, in some very, very tragic cases, they've... Um, they've even taken their own lives. It's just, it, it is a tragedy, but it's something that goes back. It goes all the way back to um, Gaelic society as in, as experienced by Merriman. And he does he does have the bachelor farmer answer. An old farmer answers a former bachelor. He is, he's married in this, but he, he starts talking about the counterpoint uh, to this, which is, you know, Asher, look, who wants the promiscuity of young women? You know, mm. young women are, you know, they're, 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 oh, you were flirting at a hurling match and you thought that would get you a husband. Jesus, you're, you're a wanton harlot. Nobody would want to be marrying <laughs> you. And then he starts talking about when he married his own wife, he married a young wife and he found her already pregnant on the wedding night and all the gossip that has surrounded the, the uh, quote unquote premature birth of his <laughs> son. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, 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 he attacks the lifestyles of, of, of young women. Now, He's pretty okay on the whole thing about the illegitimate children because his main point is not, you know, um, his main point is not, you know, we should we should marry older. His main point is we should get rid of marriage. Yeah. Marriage is out of date, you know. It's like wake up at seventeen eighty, like you know, marriage <laughs> is so seventeen forty five. Yes. You know, we should completely and totally uh, replace it. We should outlaw marriage and replace it with a system of free love, like you know, nineteen sixty seven. Eat your heart out. We were, he was, <laughs> he was smoking that shit in fecal in County Clare in seventeen eighty. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, the answer he does give as well is that it is the greatest peril to single and saying to be tied to the debts with the ball and chain, which is, you know, he's not that keen on the whole commitment thing either, mm-hmm. in fairness now. Um, but yeah, no, that is a good point, definitely, that he's saying, you know, sure, what's the point of marriage and is there any real purpose to it and everything else? And I mean, that's a valid point in this day and age too, you know, I guess. I say at the age of 24. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna, we weren't going to point out the elephant in the room. There's two <laughs> old married men in here. Yeah. What age were you when you married? I was, I think I was 35, 36. Yeah, I was 33. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good ages. Good yeah, ages. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, I think at yeah, 36, I got married. It was the same year that, same year that George Clooney and Brad Pitt got married. Oh. 
So I didn't even know they married each other. Just for yeah, I That's was just cool. gonna say for a split second, I was like, excuse me. Imal Clooney's gonna freak when she yeah. hears about this. Yeah. No, well, I, so we, we've uh, we've outlasted we've outlasted Brad and mm. uh, Brangelina. Brangelina. So mm. that at least there's, there's that we've made that far. You will never outlast the Cloonies because George knows that he is punching well above his weight. He has married above his station and is grateful to be married to the wonderful Imal and. Uh, yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. uh, that's the tea right there. Like mm. you're not gonna you're not gonna beat the Shineante. Shineante. <laughs> <laughs> um mm. Yeah, so the 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 denouement of this one then it, it comes the, the, the young woman is um not happy with the response and her rebuttal her rebuttal basically um it, she just stops short of physically destroying the older man uh, and attacking him. She mocks his inability to perform. Uh, mm-hmm. He has no felurum or dingdorum. What, what, what do we have a term there with the use for us? No. Do we have a term for felurum and dingdorum? <laughs> <laughs> Let me have a look. Well, now, there's a bit here. Those of the men who are old and sick, who shamelessly failed to use their prick, <laughs> and, and wasted the best years of their youth without giving pleasure however minute and then yeah so there is an Irish for that it's on Cuadha Cuharla Bóch Imlinta is Chélas Katar on Tharna Tirpa Chuiris Amu Gan Suvach Suvachus Dénia Bulana Huha is Lu Na Lu Anega and then it goes on and on. There are many, many paragraphs about Dingdorum and Florum. And <laughs> that is another, that's, yeah, that could go in with the crux of the poem as well as men are cancelled, we stand able and Dingdorum, Florum. <laughs> 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 that is Kurt and Vanika. Yeah, so um, it's... Uh, it's a funny one. The, the 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 rebuttal from the young lady, like she 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 mocks the old man, says he's unable to keep his wife happy. If she has taken a lover and is cuckolding him in the village, there's no surprise there because he's uh, he's not able to use his 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 tarnia, his nail <laughs> uh, to great effect. Uh, or what's it um, about his gaga, his, his his limbs? It's like the 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 life in his limbs is lacking, and yeah. when they say mm-hmm. limbs, it's it's you know it's one of the appendages that she's referring to in particular um but she says in the meantime i'm still going to try and marry an older man because the most important thing right now is i got to get married because these bitches back in the village they are just they are relentless mm-hmm. i need to get married i can't be a spinster so um then then comes the judgment and the judgment is the uh, is the the as queen of payoff queen Abel. Queen Abel. yeah and I mean, she does. She orders that priest can marry and should marry, and also mm. says that the the poet here, who's being attacked, or not, he's not being attacked. He's being called out. Um, is going to be one of the first people to face the music, and he's going to be one of the first to have to get married. And he gets pulled away by the women in the court and the hag, and blah blah blah. And then, of course, as soon as he gets pulled away, that's when he wakes up, which is what happens in a dream anyway. Like yeah. when you die, you wake up, or like it was when you all a dream. It's all a dream. That yeah. lovely primary school ending. <laughs> <laughs> I woke up and it was all a dream. Yeah. Yeah. Queen Avil says that all laymen must marry before the age of 21 on pain of corporal punishment at the hands of women. But she's very careful to say that when the women are corporally punishing the men, no hits below the belt because mm-hmm. we need to preserve the philorum and the dingdorum. <laughs> 
and the Gaga and the Tarnia and no damage to, to that area mm-hmm. uh, because she should not leave any man unable to father children. Um, she does say the priests uh, should marry. Uh, she says it's an inevitability. It will happen. It's a little bit beyond the remit of this court right now, but patience and this will happen because it's, it's the right thing. I mean, okay, so 200 and 30, 240 years later, we're still waiting, but mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, it'll happen, they say. And then after she passes judgment and says, this is what happened, as, as Clodagh says, the, the, the Owen points out and says, well, that man has to be the first to suffer. So just as he's about to get the shit kicked out of him by the fairy court and all the women of Ireland, he, he wakes up and to find it was a terrible, terrible legacy. Mm. I see. And like a lot of the, these changed men, he pretends he was always woke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if he does, yeah. though. I think that's one of the, the, the charming things of it. Like, you know, it is, it's um, it's a very frank treatment of sexuality at the time. It, it, it's a biting social commentary and, and it's, a, it's a kind of a parody of the battle of the sexes, yeah. which is normally each side extols its virtues. Uh, in this one, they're not like they're extolling their vices as well as they Nobody's in this poem saying, oh, Manana Heron, Toshi de Rouse, you know, Plurinaman, the women of Ireland are fantastic. I'm the flower of womanhood because she's coming out and saying, listen, women are giving shit to me in the village because I can't get married. So I need to get married. Right? We need to get that sorted. That guy's impotent. He's useless. And he goes up there and he says, well, I married a woman who was already pregnant. This is like, nobody comes out of this smelling of roses. Yeah. And I think one of the key things is that the, the poet doesn't, he doesn't sort of finish by saying, and of course, I was totes woke all the time and I knew all this. He sort of goes, that was a horrific nightmare. Like, mm-hmm. Jesus, imagine if women got their way. That would be that would be terrible in this instance being got their way. Like imagine if I had to be married nine years ago. That mm. would be that would be shocking. That would be awful. I'm so glad I'm not married. <laughs> so he kind of just he just hangs a hangs a lampshade on it, like you mm. know. But I there that that sort of uh, I knew that I was I felt this way all along with sort of author surrogate being so brilliant and all that. That was very common in poems at the time in Ashlingy at the time the Ashling would come to the to to the poet surrogate and and the poet surrogate would be the the manhood of Ireland. He would be the 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 brave young man, the brave warrior, the 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 gorgeous darling boy, the Gilamar. Yeah. Uh, in this, like he's like no, he's a philanderer, an alcoholic, <laughs> a bad poet, a maths teacher, <laughs> <laughs> and he's like uh, no, I'm not married either. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Forest Nagwelga, who are celebrating 20 years of promoting the Irish language. Fihibli and Igfoss. Here is just one of the projects they do. Forest Nagwelga supports the Irish language dictionaries and on Bunacher Noshunta Thermiakta Dungwelga, the National Terminology Database. On the Folklore.ie website, you'll find a modern English Irish dictionary that's easy to search and easy to use, with example sentences and pronunciation assistance. The offline app helps you keep a record of your favourite words. Chonglan.ie, that's T-E-A-N-G-L-A-N-N, combines the three major legacy Irish dictionaries in a searchable and user-friendly interface. Audio pronunciations in the three major kanunthi. Thousands of grammar files are included on both websites to help you through the Tishilginaduk and the Mokaniluk. Wondering what the Irish for selfie is? Download the Folklore.ie app for free now to find out. Forest Nagwelga celebrating 20 years. Isar Chonga Fain E. It's our language. 
you think about the other kind of the big, big Ashling poems that we know, and I'm thinking Kyodriach, the, the magic fog, the magic mist, and then yeah, he, and and typically the it would usually end by the the spare van, the the vision and the dream, uh, suggesting wouldn't it be great if we were invaded by the the Scott the Stuart clan, uh, or if we we had a different king, or if this war happened, and whereas this. That takes a different takes a different shtick in that, which is basically it's all about fixing our own problems. It is. It does, as Potter said before. It takes a kind mm. of an inward glance on Ireland, um, and uh, like I know the old hag is kind of meant to be a satirical spare but as we were saying earlier, she is a spare and she is this kind of unreal person. Mm. Um, so yeah, it is an Ashling. I think people say it is it it is satire, but then you've also got to remember that you know, it does follow the form and, mm. you know, what is an Ashling? It just kind of turns on its head, you know, so it does take a very different, a very so, different route. So Merriman is kind of sending up the Ashling as well as sending up society. Yeah, yeah. In, in a sense, yeah. I mean, he's more, you got to bear in mind that Gaelic poetry at the time, like Filiach na Gaelga at the time, was very strictly metered. It was very, um, in particular, at a time that would have been living memory for Merriman, like his his parents and his grandparents would have remembered a time when, as the saying goes, an Irish poet had to be both born and made. You could only be a poet if you came from one of the noble poetic families and you had to go and spend seven years in an old school, um, which we now use as a term for university. But at the time it was a, a school uh, for bards and bardic poetry and you had to learn from an olive. Uh, which we now use as the Irish for professor, but at the mm-hmm. time would have been the head of that school. So it still would have been a living memory, definitely in folk memory, that poetry is strictly regimented. It has to be this, it has to be that. So in essence, Merriman is sending up Irish society, yes, but he's using the established forms and kind of just making a pastiche of the Ashling of even the rhyming meter and everything. It's its set in this ancient rhyming meter. There were only a certain amount of meters that you had to write in. There was no such thing as free verse. You weren't allowed to just experiment with poetry. Everything had to be metered. and Because otherwise, you got to bear in mind, this is a society that didn't tend to write things down. Yeah. Particularly not poetry. They kept a written record of certain things, but I mean, pre-17th century, not really. Um, so f- in order for it to be memorable, it had to have a beat. So you think about Shakespearean iambic pentameter, like that's that's just a little thing that's thrown in there to help the actors mm-hmm. remember what the lines above there, you know, and this above all to thine own self be true, to give it a beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there was a meter in Irish poetry that were very, very strictly regimented meters. So Merriman is sending all of that up. He's just taking it all, mishmashing it up and turning it on its head. And the beauty of this is, of course, that he never wrote it down either. Yeah. It survived. Like the first time it was recorded was, um, I think, seventy years after he wrote it, in the in the mid eighteen hundreds. It, it was written down, and first English translations didn't arrive until seventy odd years after that, in the in the early uh, the early years of the Free State. So you know we had um, it survived because of the Gaelic poetic traditions uh, mm-hmm. that it was lampooning, and we mentioned the Free State there. And famous the Midnight Court, it, it, it was, uh, one of the things that comes up every now and then is how when we talk about censorship in Ireland is how the, there was a version of the Midnight Court, Asperla, which is which was controlled by a censor, had a restriction on it, whereas while the Irish was available. But Battery says this isn't the whole story. No, I mean there there had been some notable English translations by um by Ireland Usher, 
by um, the Earl of Longford um, and then much much later on Kieran Carson Thomas Kinsella Seamus Heaney and even even Brendan Bean reportedly uh, wrote a translation but Frank O'Connor wrote the seminal one this was the most popular English translation of it uh, because it stuck as true to the Irish one as possible and I think it's the O'Connor one that you're quoting because it was kind of a, there was a little bit of obscenity uh, <gasps> in it and because of that in 1946 it was banned by our incredibly strict censorship board but like many things that the censorship board banned, uh, they only banned the English version of it. So yeah. they banned the Frank O'Connor translation because it refused to bowdlerize the Irish version. Yeah. It translated it in the spirit it was intended to and it used so-called rude words. Uh, and because of that, it, it got the heave up. But I mean, like in 1946, the best thing you could do was ban a book. That was the way to stimulate sales because there was no realistic way of policing it. Mm. You know, there were there were people who would go around and check the bookshops to see if they had it there, but like, put it behind the counter. You know, people were walking into bookshops going, have you, uh, have you got any, uh, <laughs> got any old, uh, Frank O'Connor's translation of Cordon Vianney? And they'd be going like, are you a cop? Because if you are, you have to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, and it's funny because sometimes though one of the things they also did was that sometimes they were aware that, that there was a certain notoriety attached to banning books so what they often would say is they'd restrict it they say you have to remove these paragraphs and this happened there was a verse from one of uh, Patrick Kavanagh's poems was, was restricted because it contained a description of masturbation <laughs> um, and and he was so annoyed with this that he snuck into a shop and he scribbled in the the verse into a couple of <laughs> copies of several of them. And then he was, he I, I think it was Hodges Vegas, but I'm not sure. But he was um he was invited to leave the shop. But I, <laughs> but I believe those scribbled upon verse that versions would be worth a bit more money now. I was going to say yeah yeah they're practically mm. autographed. Practically autographed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote it with a pen, right? I was, I mean, <laughs> yeah, soon as I said that, I was like, oh, no. God, you never, you never know with that fella. Like, Patrick Cavanaugh was, was unreal. Like Patrick Cavanaugh was unreal. He had an absolute temper. And uh, in October 1938. Very he, specific. <laughs> yeah, in October 1938, he, uh, <laughs> he basically, he went to five different booksellers and threatened them. Mm-hmm. with the object of, and I quote, compelling them to stock his new novel. <laughs> he just published his new book and he visited bookshops and he asked if, um, <laughs> he asked whether or not the bookshop stocked it. And the bookseller said, yeah, I have one here in the back. So Kavanagh said, why isn't it in the window? I'll wreck the joint. I'll wreck the joint. Do you know who I am? <laughs> and this is the thing, when when we, we generally picture Paddy Kavanagh as the as the older man, the, the kind of statue by the by the canal. But when he arrived in Dublin, like he was he was a young guy, kind of uh, like farm boy muscles. Yeah. And he was yeah. A, like a he was a big, big fella and he was like he actually walked to Dublin from Monaghan because he could couldn't afford a train. He, he was absolutely determined to get published. Yeah. And when he was published, um the, when the Green Fool was published, he was thirty four. And I'm just realizing my life choices now. I'm thirty five and I haven't threatened a single bookseller. In Dublin. <laughs> he, when he was 34, he threatened five. <laughs> <laughs> I got published just before my 40th birthday. So you have not time yet to I'm bang actually, on windows and. <laughs> he has. I had to, I had to <laughs> drag him out of Hodges Figures bodily, like, you know what I mean? No, I, I was. Uh, I think Where's that, Crack Baby? I'll kill all of you! <laughs> it was put next to Rory's stories in one shop. Uh, I direct the camera. <laughs> 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 was it in the so- Irish humor? <laughs> I think it. 
I, 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 I do think now with with the perspective of kind of a year or so onwards, I do think that like the name Crack Baby may have may not have very represented the actual tone of that book. And maybe I think that's I think the book because I was writing about um, about Irish and about what, what I wanted Irish to be for my for my daughter. She's going to be growing up and all, all the other issues that came up about accessibility. I think possibly the I probably a different name may have maybe expressed the tone better. Nah, nah. nah Daryl Breen called one of his autobiographies Crack Dealer. Mm. And one of his shows was Crack Dealer. Oh, yeah. And so, not, I mean, I, I, yeah, The Crack Dealer, and I suppose that's a kind of a comedy show. I'm not, I don't, like, it's I mean... A, it's a funny yeah. book. Is it not meant to be funny? <laughs> it is. I laughed a lot, like. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm glad. Just after I moved the Rory Stories book into the fiction section. Yes. Oh, gosh. <laughs> But I mean, the thing about Rory Stories, you know, he gets a lot of criticism from the kind of from the blue noses of left with left leaning Twitter. But you know, it is terrible, you know, when you want to go out drinking with the lads and your wife won't let you. Oh, and you hate your wife so much. <laughs> you just hate her so much, and that's the joke. That's that's the start of the joke, and that's the middle of the joke, and that's the end of the joke. I just hate her so much, and it's unbelievable that from Breen Merriman and Court and Vionia. The humour hasn't changed <laughs> that much. We are still, still getting a laugh of aren't women awful and they don't let you go do be drinking and things. Would Banry and Ava have a few words to say about Rory's stories? She'd want to get oh a move on. Oh my God, yeah. Can she come back, please? <laughs> Before we wrap up... <laughs> Uh, so, Court and Vanny, Patty, uh, you said you you mentioned to me before that you you were involved in a dramatic re. Uh, <laughs> yeah, were you? I was, yeah, but um, but like it's it's mad long. <laughs> it is. So really I, long. I, I I played the poet uh, in a dramatic interpretation of Court and Vianney uh, many many years ago, and like there was no way we were going to be learning all the lines. <laughs> uh, so basically, what we did was um, somebody else read all the lines and I just did two hours of mime oh, in the middle of the stage. Um, our Bonry and Evil had learned her lines and the young woman had learned her lines and the older man had learned his lines. It's just, I, I, t- I took over the role about like eight days before we went to stage and looked at this and went, there's no fucking way I'm <laughs> learning that. So we got the guy who I was replacing had learned the lines months, months in advance, but he'd hurt his legs. So he wasn't able to do the show. So he read it into a microphone off stage, and it gave us this ethereal, otherworldly kind of the overall narration came from beyond. So completely accidentally, it was very cool. Yeah, that's like in keeping with the whole spare yeah. thing. Yeah, absolutely. And mm. and the best bit about it was I was free to just absolutely ham it up because it was just like, oh, ooh, oh, it was all a dream. Oh, God, iconic. We need to see that again. Nilach Bringlord. Nilach Bringlord. This is the thing, just before we do wrap up, Ashling doesn't actually mean a dream, it means a vision and a dream. Yeah. Yeah. And a Bringlord is a dream. Yeah. Yeah. And a bad dream is a... is a Trumley. Trumley. Trumley, which means to lie heavily. Yeah. Not a... Not a Kapaliha. Oh God! Just wanted to clarify for those learners at home who are just who are just do, doing Gail Tober, rocking oh. hard, massive, mm-hmm. all more. So until the next time, uh, beware, beware what you dream. Yes, beware. <laughs> we take no responsibility for nightmares. Freddy Krueger. Yep, and mind you, are Philorums and these are Dingdorums <laughs> out there. Okay, until next time, it's a slon from me. A slon from me. And it's a slon wimshire. Mind yourselves.
Motherfuck Lurk comes out every Friday on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. You can send comments, queries, suggestions, feedback, or questions to motherfucklore at headstuff.org. Thanks a million to Brian for producing and to Kirsten, as always, for the amazing artwork. If you'd like to see Motherfucklore live in action, you can join us at the Dublin Podcast Festival on the 17th of October. All details on Twitter and all that jazz. You'll find us somehow. Thanks so much for listening. Unfollow me on Instagram. Instagram.com slash Clodafoto. C-L-O-D-A-F-O-T-O. Derek said that I could do this. Please keep this in. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. The opinions of Claude McKinley are not the opinions of Headstuff, its shareholders, its sponsors, or a drop chef. <laughs>